Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. This morning, a Sunday morning spiritual speaker, um, who I feel his message is larger than he is, if you can believe that. Uh, we have Ed M. from Iowa. Good morning, my name's Ed I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a mood-altering chemical since January 5th of 1971, and for that I'm extremely grateful. Uh, just for those of you who know, yes, I do have a jacket. It's right here. Very good. People don't really understand that heat rises, and I'm up higher than most of them, you know. Chris was burning up up here last night, so I figured, well, I know I'm in for trouble, yep. But I want to thank Bart, and I want to thank Sal, and I want to thank everybody who's worked so hard, you know, to, to put this together. It's really been a nice weekend, hasn't it been? Tom and Virginia, for their efforts, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of retreats, and uh, i got to tell you, uh, I know they love to do it, don't get me wrong, but it is so draining because you could tell by the way they were doing it, they were putting their whole heart into it. And uh, it's a good drain, but it's draining, and it takes a lot out of you. So thank you for all your time and your effort this weekend. Good job. And you guys will be doing a little more after I'm done, right? Yeah. Yep, going to be more after I'm done. So I'll only talk for about five minutes. I uh, I like being in New York City. I, I like the buildings being as big as I am. I like that. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, uh, yes, I have trouble buying clothes, and the weather's fine up here. Thank you very much. Uh, it's always the same two questions by the same size person. First question, oh, how tall are you? And I say 6'10". They say, oh, do you play basketball? And I say, no, how tall are you? And they say, five, six. And I say, do you play miniature golf? (laughs) Seems fair to me. They made up the rules, you know. (laughs) And believe it or not, I used to think I had to do things to get attention. (laughs) It was him, officer. That's the guy right there. (laughs) And I come from a very elite group of people called White Trash. And... uh, Worked hard to keep that image, too. It's not easy when you have a position in society, but by God, we managed to do it, you know. And, uh, you know, I laugh and joke about that a lot, but I also got to tell you that was the toughest thing for me to shake. I don't know about you, but very early in life, very early in life, I had the sense that there was something wrong with me deep down inside. 
what I've come to know that I had a sense of worthlessness, that I don't know where it came from, but I know I certainly had it. And it was so tough for me to ever shake that. It was so tough for me to ever shake that. You know, a lot of people come to me and talk to me about different things, and I give them a charge, and I'll give you a charge this morning. I give them the charge of, I want you to start treating yourself as if you actually like you. I want you to treat you in the same way you would somebody you actually loved and respected. Now, that's not about building your self-esteem. That's about building your God-esteem. Because deep down inside of each and every one of us is a fundamental idea of God, and that's the thread, I believe, that keeps us together and keeps us sober. At least that's my opinion. I... uh I started drinking, uh, I don't know when. Uh, Dad used to think it was funny to get me drunk, and uh, I didn't argue. I didn't argue at all because, you know, very early on I found out when I had a few drinks, I didn't really care what kind of house I lived in or what clothes I was wearing or what you had to say about either, you know. And all of a sudden I got tougher. I don't know about you, but you give me you give me a beer or two and I'm, I get pretty tough. Uh, beats crying, crying all the time because that's what I did. Uh, I, I was a crybaby, I guess you'd say, but now I understand that, no, I wasn't a crybaby. I was just a, a real sensitive kid that was in tune with this world. Uh, there isn't a day go by today that I don't cry, but uh, I'm certainly not ashamed of it. In fact, I, I love being both feet inside of life today, you know, whether it's uh, burying a good friend of mine or watching a new life come into it. I am so pleased I'm present, fully present today. And that I'm accountable and accounted for, you know. And that really is by the grace of God in these 12 steps. Really enjoyed Chris's talk last night. You know, he said he was controversial. Uh, nothing he said was controversial to me as far as I understand Alcoholics Anonymous. Not one thing he said was controversial to me. Uh, it's just a lot of people don't want to hear about AA anymore. You know, they want to hear about issues. You know, I have issues. And I said, well, do you have any Playboy? <laughs> you know. <laughs> If you got some of those, I'd like some issues too. And uh, and I'm not. I'm, I'm really not putting that down. It just has no place in AA. It just has no place in AA. That's good therapy. That's group, good group therapy. It just has no place here. And that line has been so smirched, and it's nobody's fault, really. I mean, we can try to blame fingers and point fingers. It's like things happen in AA, and 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 they happen. We don't even know it. A while back, I, do, do they do it up here after the Lord's Prayer? You know, keep coming back, uh, call your sponsor, go to different meetings, have, take a walk, breathe deeply, uh, call your sponsor, make amends to your mother. Hey, you know. And uh, <laughs> and I got to honestly tell you, I got to honestly tell you, I fell into doing that. Yeah, keep coming back, yes, 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 keep coming back, yes, yes, yes. And I, I'm out, in, I'm down south somewhere, and there's a conversation over here. It has nothing to do with me. A conversation going on over here. And one guy says, you know, we got done with the Lord's Prayer. Keep coming back. Go to different meetings. Call your sponsor. I say, I say, I say, hey. And uh, <laughs> the guy said, the guy said to the other guy, isn't that just like alcoholics that think they can improve on the Lord's Prayer? And I don't know about you, but I went, oh God. So I now end it with amen. My home group is the Big Book Study Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, it isn't the best group in the world, and the only reason I say that is I haven't been to all the groups, to tell you that. I mean, that sounds cute and quaint, but some of us it sounds arrogant, you know. But I'll tell you what, it's a group I'm quite comfortable in.
and you're more than welcome to it. And we uh, just focus on the, the, the forward doctor's opinion, first 164 pages, the big book. First time it only took us four years and four months to get through it, you know? <laughs> and we got rules there. You can only share your experience, strength, and hope on what was read. A lot of people don't like to come to our meeting. You know? <laughs> and uh, it's just, just a cool way to do it. And the only reason we did that is, you know, you hear AA then. You hear recovery. And uh, I'm not putting down what anybody else does. That's, that's not really my, my intention or even my business. I just know this, that uh, I'm burying a lot of people lately that never got to know what Alcoholics Anonymous is. They got to know what a lot of treatment centers' ideas were and a lot of fringers in AA, their ideas were, but they never found what was in the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so the little I can do is just say, you know, that's where it's at for me. That's where it's at. It's in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is the answer to all my problems. I'm one of those that if you aren't working this program in every area of your life, that's the area that's going to get you drunk. That's the area that's going to make you go to another program. That's the area that's going to make you someday think AA doesn't work. You know? And it says in our book, if you need outside help, seek it. I don't see anywhere where it says, if you need outside help, make it your God. I get outside help to help me get along what I'm doing. Now, for me particularly, I've never had any therapy outside Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and that's not saying anything good or bad about you. It's just been my experience. I find that if I submit myself and whatever's going on into this 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, a healing takes place in me. Uh, it isn't an intellectual healing. It's a spiritual healing that ends up in an intellectual healing. Because I finally figure it out. For me, it's usually a matter of control in one way or the other. What's causing me problems, you know? I, uh, I used to drink and I, I, uh, at the age of 13, I was arrested by the Iowa Highway Patrol for possession of a sawed-off shotgun. I had a double-barrel 12-gauge that was about 14 inches long. And when you're my size and got one of them, you're in charge, you know? <laughs> Yeah. They just kind of pay attention when you whip that bad boy out. <laughs> and I knew nothing about guns then, no less now, actually. Uh, but I remember when I got busted with that, and uh, the Highway Patrol, Iowa Highway Patrol, said, what do you do with this? And I said, I go rabbit hunting. And he said, what do you do, run them down and beat them to death with it? <laughs> I had no idea about shell pattern and all that. I don't know, you know. But uh, I remember they put the cuffs on me and they fell off. And he said, I remember they put the cuffs on me and they fell off. And he said, are you ticklish? And I said, no, and I am. That's when I got my first whooping. <laughs> it wasn't his fault. He asked me going in, you know. I don't know about you, but I used to complain about the law enforcement. I used to complain about school, teachers. Miss Kesey, my first, my kindergarten teacher, not that I remember her. But my first day in kindergarten slapped me right across the face. Now everybody go, oh, thanks, thanks. And I hated school ever since. Now you know what? That's true by my perspective, but let's look at the truth for a moment. I was a rotten kid. I would have slapped me across the face the first day in school. And you know what? I never told you about all the wonderful teachers that tried their best to help me. I just didn't actually bring them up. It didn't fit my story. It didn't fit my victimization so well. 
you know, Miss Burns, Miss Vanderslice, all those wonderful teachers that just loved me and said, Eddie, you can do so much better. We're proud of you every time I do something good. But I'd never mention them years sober in AA. Why? Well, to defeat my story, wouldn't it? Couldn't be quite the victim. And if there's anything I love is being a victim, you know? It's like painful relationships, you know? Are you really sick? Call me, you know? <laughs> Not really. Just kidding. <laughs> Been there, done that. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I help you. But, uh... <laughs> But I started doing something when I was a kid, and it hung on to me for years. And I call it my 299 to 1 theory. I could walk into a room with 300 people. 299 could turn around to me and say, Ed, you're the best. We love you. And one person could go, jerk. Guess who I focused on? Guess who I remembered out of the entire group? I did that in every area of my life. No wonder my life sucked. I had a bag of ones. Organized religion. Now, I know you wouldn't do anything like this, but I remember going to church. Mom used to drag us to church, and oh, that was fun. Some minister out there going, you're going to burn in hell, young man. You're going to burn in hell. I think, how do you know i only been here 20 minutes? In retrospect, that's probably figured out by then. I was going to burn in hell. But, uh, I just hate it, and all ministers have thin blue lips talk like this. And people who are virtuous. And there's a guy sitting up front, and he always looks so holy Sunday morning. And I used to think, you know, he looked like he was having a lot more fun in the bar last night, honestly, you know. It was a little loosened up. And I don't know who that woman with that frown is sitting with him, but the girl he was with last night was a lot more fun, too. And I'd sit there and look at them, though I know you aren't this way. But I didn't only judge that guy and his wife and that entire pew or that entire church. I judged entire organized religion by my little narrow mind and hung on to it for years, saying, that's the truth. It's the truth because that's all I wanted to see, and I'm a collector of ones. And when you collect ones like I collect ones, it's just a matter of time before anything turns bad. You know, we talk a lot about faith. And I used to say I didn't have any faith before I got here. I realized that was wrong. I had a lot of faith. I had faith in Murphy's Law. No, no, I did. And I had faith in waiting for the other shoe to drop. I had faith that no matter what, I was going to get the crappy end of the stick, if you know what I mean. I professed it. I believed it. And it came to be. I really believe having a positive relationship with God is just simply changing your mind. No more, no less. Can't be that simple. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. January 5th of 1971, I got sober. I really didn't plan to. It wasn't in my Palm Pilot, anything. And uh, I ended up, I was in a car wreck one more time. And uh, I used to do that a lot. And I'm laying in the middle of the street. And I used to be a cop fighter. Any other cop fighters in here? All right, yeah, I see that smile a little wink. Yeah, baby. I found out something I wanted to share with you in case ever you want to do any field research. Uh, there's always more of them. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Sixth and Leclerc, Davenport, Iowa, three o'clock in the morning. 
cops pull up. And I'm pretending like I'm knocked out. I'm not sure why, but it seemed like the thing to do at the time. And, and I hear the cops come out and say, that's Mutum. Don't touch him. He's the scum of the earth. Car's probably hot. He's nothing but a punk. Just leave him there. Don't even cover him. And an amazing thing happened. I agreed. I agreed. For some reason that night, January 5th of 1971, it was totally clear to me that I wasn't there as the result of how I was raised, what I did or did not have, what did or did not happen when I was a child. I was there because I could not stop drinking of my own volition. And I, like uh, other people talked about, I did a lot of other things, and I believe in singleness of purpose, so I don't go into them at all. I will simply say this. One thing you never heard come out of my mouth is, what will this do to you? I didn't care. I'll die more, die more, yeah. And for me, uh, I've never had to go anywhere else for those other addictions because they're all inclusive if I understand the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're all inclusive for me. But they rolled me into the hospital. It always used to be fun when they'd put me in the ambulance because my feet would stick out the back doors. <laughs> and they, the, 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 the ambulance people didn't like me much anyway, so they'd let the doors slam on my ankles as it would go down. They seemed to, we, we seemed to visit quite a lot. Uh, I thought they said I'd OD'd. I said I was just trying to have a better time. <laughs> and uh, so they took me up to the hospital and they rolled me past this nurse, and I, I don't remember her, uh, where I knew her from, but she knew me because she said, Ed, do you want me to call AA? And I went, might as well. Now, us old-timers want to know why you new people can't be sincere like we were in the old days. You know? <clears throat> might as well. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I used to say that. Oh, you need to be sincere. Yeah. If motives counted, this room would be empty. You know, I believe that. And uh, they rolled me by. And uh, any wine drinkers here? I was, a, I, I was a wine connoisseur. Yeah, 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 yeah. Every once in a while, I'd get the kind with a cork, too. You know, yeah. Mm. Yeah. then you know you broke into a good house. Mm. And uh, <laughs> God, that's true. That's really true. Uh, but I like that stuff. You know, you can always tell the difference between an AA and an Al-Anon speaker. Al-Anon speakers talk and go, and then he said this and he said that and they did this. And A speakers go. <laughs> and then, you know, but... <laughs> But I was, I, I loved uh, Thunderbird, Mad Dog 2020, those, a few Velo inhalers, a little other thing. <laughs> and I really liked them. You know, I just loved them. Ariba was good, but it was getting up there. It was up to about 73 cents a quart. <laughs> well, you know, you want to drink fancy, you got to pay for it. And, um, and it was, it was so bad I had to hold my nose to drink it because if I did, ooh, you know, just, and get it to get that whole court down. I could do it, boy. My, it was just good. So I had had one of those nights of various and sundry things based in wine. And the next day I got a little gift that some of you may be familiar with. It's called the dry heaves. Oh, it was one. <laughs> <coughs> a little slime would come off your lip. And you go.
Then, then your knees would stop shaking a little bit, and you'd think, it's over. <laughs> and you'd keep going right up until you tasted your toenails, and you had this sound at the end. <laughs> Then I started doing my Thorazine shuffle back to the bed. <laughs> and I went in and I laid down. And some guy from A&A came in. Named Hap, short for Happy. And he's smiling. Hi, Ed, I'm Hap from A&A. And I thought, get out of my room. Gee. Who needs it, you know? And he said, we don't drink one day at a time. And I looked at him and I said, you know something? And I don't know why I got honest that day, except for God's grace. I said, you know something? I can't make it a whole day without something. Wish I could. I went to my first AA meeting when I was 10 years old. I've got a brother sober 44 years in South Carolina. He's so dry we don't let people smoke around him, you know? <laughs> and he'd taken me to A&A and I thought it was all fun for them and they lied to me. My meeting, they lied to me. I always say, nobody ever lies to you in a, That's a load of crap. They said, you know, if you keep drinking and doing all that stuff, you're going to die. And I thought, excellent. Where do I sign up? That was not a threat to me. That would have been a gift from God. Do you mean the madness would stop? you mean the stomach would just... And I could be free. Oh, threaten me with death. Good idea. No, better yet, threaten me with, you may live a long time. You know... Okay, okay, I'll pay attention, you know. And I was 20 years old, and I used to hear all that stuff about young people. Uh, we're so glad you got here before you hurt. Oh, here, you won't have to see it anymore, you know. Just, I'd never do anything like that, of course. But it's so silly when they say things. I mean, if we were all cancer survivors... Would we really go into a room of a 16-year-old and go, we're so glad you got it when you were so young? <laughs> no. It's true. It's absolutely true. I was 20 years old going on 104. I was an old man. I was so much older then than I am now in every way. In every way. And thank God for the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked into one AA group, and I wasn't quite up to their standards. They had heard about my reputation, so they asked me to leave. Walked into another one. It was the rich guys' club. It was a club up on the hill. They had chairs and everything. You know? Walked into that room, and the most amazing thing happened. I walked in. Somebody looked me directly in the eye. Stuck out their hand, a guy by the name of John, saying, uh, My name's John. What's your name? I said, Ed. I had my look. you know, you got to have your look. He said, well, welcome, Ed. One cup of coffee? Come on in. And he was very kind to me. And he sat me down. I was there a couple of weeks, and I nudged somebody. I said, these people are awful nice. What do they want from me? And he said, what do you got that anybody would want? <laughs> well, you got a point there. I'd never quite thought about it like that. But the only thing they talked about, and to this day at that meeting, you will only hear Alcoholics Anonymous in that meeting. You will only hear Alcoholics Anonymous in that meeting. And I am so grateful for that. And I knew I had to keep busy. I didn't, sponsorship wasn't real big back then. Uh, it was known a little bit, but we're talking 35 years ago. 
in the Midwest. And, yeah, there were sponsors around, but it wasn't a big deal. You know, it was just... And I, I wouldn't ask anybody anyway, because I certainly didn't think I was worth anybody's time, you know. And, uh, but I knew God gave me the knowledge instinctively to keep busy, and I kept busy. Man, I was busy. And you know, when you cold detox, it was so much fun, and there was a lot of shakers. You know, you don't see many shakers anymore. Any other shakers here? Okay, good. Yeah, I was a shaker, man. How are you doing, Ed? Oh, good. How are you doing, man? Cup of coffee? No, thanks. Cup chips my teeth. Piece of cake? No, can't have sharp objects. And I was just quick in my arms. And, and I just had two rules. They were real simple. Don't come up behind me and don't touch me. You know? <laughs> simple rules. Simple. And, uh, and little Harry in my group didn't know my rules. And thank God he didn't. Because Harry was coffee poor. And he'd come up behind me and he'd put his hand right here. And he'd pour that coffee and there'd be a peace come over me like I'd never known before. The madness for the first time in my life stopped. I could breathe. And momentarily I knew everything was going to be okay. I don't know why. I just knew it was. And Harry'd keep that hand there and pour that coffee real slow. And then he'd go and as soon as he pulled that hand away it'd start again. I'd drink that coffee just as quick as I could. So Harry'd come by, put his hand on the, that loving, healing hand of God and told me it's okay. And believe me, when I come here, I'm not saying it to be dramatic. I wasn't somebody you'd want to touch or even sit by. I did not care about personal cleanliness at all. That had gone out the window years ago. And the only regret I have about that is I never got to tell Harry, Harry, thank you. Thanks for just touching me, man. Touch is so important. really is. It really is. Years later, when I was going through a lot of depression, and uh, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I have no depressions anymore, and the only therapy I've done is 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that makes a lot of people mad. <laughs> Pray for me. Uh, Never thought I'd apologize for that, I'll tell you. And believe me, I don't apologize for it at all. But I was going through a real tough time. If you ever ever had those deep, dark spots where it's just black and you're just saying, oh, man. My plan was to go to my sponsor's house and just, he had, he was a big deal out there. And he had a garage with a bunch of gas coffee pots in it. And I was going to go and I was going to turn on all the coffee pots and I was just going to go and lay down. No dramatics, no notes. When you're in that shape, you don't care what they think. You don't care what you leave. You just know the pain and the madness is too much. And I stopped by the club in Santa Monica, California. I had gone and ended up living out there. And I walked into the club, and there was a guy named Jimmy. Jimmy R. From, he was from Texas, but he lived in Malibu. Jimmy was a salesman. He, he rubbed his hands together like this. He was a rapid-fire salesman. He'd give you three talks in time one. You know what I mean? He was just rapid-fire. He said, one time I asked some psychiatrist why I rubbed my hands together like this, and he said, he told me, he said, I smacked him right in the mouth, you know. That was Jimmy. And Jimmy was there that day, and I walked by Jimmy. I already told you my plan. I walked by Jimmy, and I said, how are you, Jimmy? And it was like the world stopped. And I don't know if Jimmy said this to everybody or not, but it's not important. It was like the world stopped, and he looked me right in the eye. And he said, I'm much better for seeing you, my friend. I'm much better for seeing you. 
Now, I don't know what you think about that, but I know it changed my mind about turning on the gas that day. I thought, you know, if Jimmy says that, maybe, just maybe, I'll die tomorrow. I'll put it off till tomorrow. Maybe he's, maybe he sees something in me I don't. Thank God. Thank God. So it is important what we say and what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. It is important what we say to the new person in Alcoholics Anonymous. It is important that we install hope in the new person in Alcoholics Anonymous and encourage them. They've had enough of the other crap, believe me. For years I was pretty good at sarcastic one-liners in AA. And uh, I try not to do that anymore. Every once in a while I'll slip uh, and I'll do that. My sponsor pulled me aside one time. He said, you know, Ed, the people that really love you don't even want to talk to you anymore. And I said, why? He said, because you're smart mouth. And I said, oh, man, they just don't like it because they can't keep up with me. I got an edge on them. My mind's a little quicker than them. He said, no, Ed, they just don't like you. <laughs> and I really thought I was just being clever. Thank you very much. Quick, got a quick mind, quick. And I do, but it can be used for positive things as well. Whatever I'm honing, you know. And I said a prayer, and don't say this prayer unless you mean it, I promise you. I said, God, uh, please show me the effects my humor has on other people. And I'm in a meeting, and uh, this little girl comes up to me all bubbly and happy and da-da-da-da-da-da. And I just remember her eyes. I don't even remember her name. I, or I can't see her face. I, I see her eyes right now. And I just said a one-liner took her off at the knees. And I'm like seven, eight years sober this time. And I laughed and I walked away. And as I walked away, her eyes came to mine. And I stopped in the middle of the aisle of the meeting and started crying. I had just destroyed her spirit for what? So I do my best not to do that. But, you know, like I said, I still there's still some times. I was down south just a short while ago. And uh, down there with a friend of mine, we were speaking at the... And we were walking up to hear the speaker, and there's a guy laying across a bunch of chairs with his feet sticking out in the aisle. So as we walked by, I, I reached down, grabbed his toe, and said, Be healed, you know, and kept going. Oh, you laughed. Ha, ha, you know. After the meeting, the guy came up to me and said, Can I talk to you for a minute? I said, Sure you can. He said, I've got hepatitis C, and my liver's shot, and they won't put me on the transplant list, and I'm dying. And I was laying there trying to get up enough strength to make it through the meeting, and you come up and made your cute little remark. He said, I am so sorry. And I said, you know, I talk about this all the time. Still got something to learn, don't I? Still got something to learn. I said, what can I do? He said, be more thoughtful. And I said, you know what? I'm a pretty thoughtful guy, but you've made it quite clear I need to be more. And I said, I promise you I'll do that. And I'll share that whenever I get the chance. We're not here to put each other down. We're here to lift each other up. And I think somewhere that's gotten lost in a lot of places I go. I started going to meetings. I went to meetings and was busy, busy, busy. Uh, I knew it was just a matter of time before they brought up that three-letter word. I'd braced myself. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Sure enough, I was sitting in a meeting. One day, one of the old-timers looked at me and said, Ed, don't you think it's time you got a job? <laughs> no. I'm still stealing. Still doing pretty good. Thank you very much. Making ends meet. 
not being greedy. You know. And he said, no, 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 Ed. <laughs> uh, said, you got to be self-supporting through your own contribution. you got to stop being a mooch and thinking the world owes you something. Now, I'll tell you, I had that attitude that I was entitled to something. I promise you, I did not get that from my mother and father, who two were the hardest working people I've ever known in my life. Didn't ask anybody for anything. And worked, worked, worked. I don't know where I got that, but I certainly had it. And I'm certainly glad I don't have it anymore. And uh, I used to sit in meetings. And I remember I was about six months sober, and I got honesty. At about six months, you get honesty. At about eight months, you get a little tact to go with the honesty, you know. Uh, I'd suggest you wait for the tact before you take anybody's inventory. But Father Tom was in the meeting, had thin blue lips, talked like this. And he said, Ed, he said, uh, why don't you come back to church? And I said, I'll tell you why I don't go back to church. Full of thieves, hypocrites, and liars. <laughs> Felt pretty good about telling him, too. He smiled and looked at me and said, well, Ed, why don't you come? One more won't hurt. <laughs> I punished him. I didn't talk to him for two or three months, you know. But God, the lessons I was learning, and thank God I still learn lessons. My prayers today are real simple. I like two-word prayers. My, two, my prayers today are reachable and teachable. That's all I want to remain, reachable and teachable. I was going to meetings, and sooner or later they brought up God, and I had a lot of ones about God. I don't know about you, but I, I mean to offend no one, uh, uh, but this is the faith I had or lack of faith I had at that time. I used to say he was a punk and bring him down here and I'd beat the sheet off of him. And I wasn't being funny. I hated everything I knew about God. So if there was a God, why are there starving children? If there's a God, why are people dying of cancer? If there's a God. I remember when I was 10 years old, my cousin Linda, if anybody was ever close to God, it was Linda. She did everything right. She, her hair was perfect. Grades were perfect. She was beautiful. Couldn't stand her. And, uh, but I admired her because I thought, man, I could never do that, but you do good, you know. And she was walking across the street, and a truck came by and hit and killed her. And I'm at the funeral, and I'm hearing people saying, God must have wanted an angel. And I thought, so he hits you with a truck. <laughs> I'll pass. Yeah. You know what? Still do. <laughs> Still do. So I had a lot of stuff about God. I had a bag full of ones just about God. Imagine my dismay when I heard in AA that uh, that was the only thing that was going to keep me from drinking. That my sobriety had to be based in a power greater than myself. Oh, man. But then they gave me one of the keys to the kingdom. They said, you can make up your own God. And I thought, you can he said, yeah. I said, cool. And I thought about it long and hard. A couple days, I think. I came back to the meeting and I said, I've come up with a God of my understanding. And they said, okay, what is it? And I said, my God's kind, loving, and understanding. How do you like that? And they went, they didn't seem to mind. You know? Of course, I learned later that AAs hate all original ideas. You know, but... <laughs> But the reason that was so odd to me was that was 180 degrees from anything I'd ever really thought about God. God was up there looking at me. I was going to go to hell by the time I was eight. And he was just looking at me. And then they asked me to pray in AA. And I thought, no, I'm no dummy. He's got radar. As soon as you pray, that signal goes up. <clears throat> you know? 
But I prayed. I remember my first prayer of sober. Uh, I'm a big, tough guy. I'm a street fighter. I'm a punk. Uh, I'm a pretend biker. And, uh, well, I didn't have a bike, but I look good. I look good. And, uh, I didn't fit on him. I looked like a monkey on a roller skate. I don't, I don't care if it was a Harley. It still kind of went. <laughs> I lost my place. I got to start all over. My name's Ed and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> But I, I would, uh, you know, uh, I, I really did lose my place. I'm going to lose my train of thought. But we were talking about uh, a relationship with God. And uh, they told me that I could uh, develop my own, which I did. But I made a mistake. And I want to share that mistake with you. Hopefully that if you're doing it, you can get back before it's damaging. I started professing a faith I didn't have. And I didn't even know I was doing it. You know, there were things that happened in my life that slowly told me that there was a presence in my life and a power much greater than myself. But then I started parroting what I'd heard old-timers say, you know. God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Easy does it. And you old-timers, don't you like somebody three months sober saying, did you pray about it? <laughs> yeah, we prayed about it, you know. But, but I was just, and I didn't do it intentionally. Honest to God, I didn't do it intentionally. And I started... I became so spiritual I was of no earthly good, you know? And you can do that here, I promise you. And there's only one problem with that, what I said earlier, that there'll be a time when your sobriety is dependent upon your relationship with God. And guess what if you don't have one? You know, why is it we always are surprised when we're spiritually weak when we have been doing no spiritual exercises? Why is that a surprise? Yet it always seems to be. Well, I've lost touch with God. Really? How's your prayer and meditation? Oh, too busy. I've lost touch with God. Okay. You know. Um, but I uh, I started professing that faith and I got in real trouble. And I didn't know it. I was about a year sober. A little over a year sober. And Dad asked me home for uh, dinner. Now, I don't know about your old man, but if my old man asked me from the invitee was usually in trouble. You know what I mean? And I didn't really want to go, and I went to a meeting, and they said, No, Ed, if your home life is going to change, it's got to begin with you. You don't wait for them to start. You bring it home. I said, You watch your attitude and your actions. You go in there and, and bring the presence of God. So I suited up, and I went in there, and about halfway through dinner, Dad looked at me and said, Boy, and I thought, Yeah, Pop. I thought, Here it comes. He said, Just want to tell you I'm proud of you. Now, you know, if you're new or if you're used, they tell you in AA. Either way, you're, I'm glad you're here. But they tell you in AA that miracles will happen, and I believe me, I testify to that wholeheartedly. I testify to that wholeheartedly. Miracles will happen. But I also got to tell you with every sincere bone in my body that my old man telling me he was proud of me would have never even made the list of ultra-miracles. That was just beyond my comprehension, which I find today so much of my life was from where I came from. You know, when I walked into the house that night, if you asked me if I cared what my old man thought of me and had me hooked to a lie detector, I would have said no, and it would have said true. I'm so grateful I was so horribly wrong about that and so many other things. As we go through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the greatest freedoms I know is to see when I've been wrong and the freedom from not having to be there anymore. Not having to be there. God, I felt great. It's one of the greatest nights of my life. Went to a meeting, 
afterwards and stopped by my sister-in-law's house and my mom called shortly thereafter about 11 o'clock at night and said, Ed, you got to come home. And she's crying. And I said, Mom, what's wrong? She said, uh, Dad went across the street to get himself a quart of beer and me a bottle of pop and they're carrying bodies out. I don't know what's going on. Please come home. So it was one of those ice storm nights. I'm sure you get them up here a quarter inch ice over everything and it's just a mess. So it took me a little while to get home and while I was driving I thought, well, God, I got God now. Nothing bad can really happen in my life. And I pulled up to that bar I'd been drinking in since I was uh, 11 years old. And there were more cops there than I've ever seen in my life. Funny how those cops shaped up that year I got sober. You know, Odd thing, if you, you don't t- talk about their heritage, they usually won't talk about yours. You don't talk about their sexual habits, they won't talk about your sexual habits. You don't swing at them, they don't swing back. It's just amazing. you know. But, and in that year I'd been working in the courts, we had a wonderful wonderful relationship with the court system at that time. Uh, members of AA would sit in court, and if somebody came in with a drinking problem, the judge would just say, I want you to go with these two guys and bring them back in 30 days. It was wonderful. And they come, and people were staying sober in droves. I mean, because we were taking that individual time. You know, a 12-step call is more than verification of insurance. It really is, you know. And people were staying sober, and it was just great. Then, thank God, the professionals came in to help us. <laughs> anyway, well, no, it's unfortunately true. I mean, our success rate, what's 2 to 3% now? It is. You think that's wrong? Whatever treatment center you came out of, how many are still sober? Do the math. How many newcomers have you seen? In the last year, if they stayed, this wouldn't be big enough. We wouldn't have places big enough. And it's because I believe they don't hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous anymore. They hear the watered-down version that they have to pay for and then believe that that's the truth. And it's nobody's fault, maybe ours, because we passed all that on to other people and don't do 12-step calls like we used to. I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but thanks anyway. Um, (laughs) I walk into that bar. And one of the policemen there said, uh, I said, he said, Ed, what's going on? What are you doing here? And I said, what's going on? My dad was in here. He said, oh, my God, Ed. And I said, why? What's wrong? He said, Ed, all we can tell you is somebody came in and opened fire and shot everybody. And I looked down the bar and I saw a pool of blood with my father's glasses all smashed up in it. And I just got heart sick. And you folks in New York really know what I mean by heart sick. I'd always hoped nobody would know that then. Oklahoma City happened, and then September 11th happened, and everybody knows what it is to lose somebody from such a senseless, violent act. And I just wanted to not to know. That's what I wanted. I wanted not to know. I did not want that information. And I turned to my old arch enemy, the policeman, and I said, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Because if I revert back to my old ideas, everybody's in trouble. And thank God he said, Ed, you need to go up to the hospital, see if your dad's up there. They've taken everybody up there. Some are still alive. So I went in the car and I went up there. And there was an officer up there that hadn't forgotten my past. And he was nasty and he was rude and he was vulgar. And he basically told me he'd identified all the bodies. My old man wasn't one of them. And I better get out of there before he runs me in for obstruction of justice. And another AA miracle happened. I said, okay. A year and a half before that, they would have been looking for a new lieutenant because you don't talk to me in that tone ever. But you changed my heart and my mind. Thank God. I went home and uh, called the cop that's for the last five years of my drinking and using, tried his best to put me away. 
he had a fault, though. He was an honest cop. He could have planted me a hundred times, but he always used to tell me, I'm going to catch you straight up, and you're going away for a long time. And I used to say, everything's fair in love and war, chump. That's the guy I called because I knew I could trust him. He was honest. And I called him, and I said, my dad was in that tavern. He stole my God, Ed. He fed me information coming in. He told me later, I prayed for you all night, Ed. He said, yeah, I knew you had a year clean and sober. He said, I just prayed you could stay that way. I just prayed because if anything was going to make you go, this would be it. My arch enemy prayed for me all night. Funny how when I change, they aren't enemies anymore, isn't it? We searched the streets. We came up that he'd wandered outside uh, uh, and wandered outside somewhere. They took him as hostage. So we searched the streets for the next eight, ten hours. And the next morning, that officer called me from the hospital and said, Well, Ed, do you want to come up and identify your old man? Anybody could have made a mistake. And I said, Sure. And I went up there, and I walked into that morgue, and I saw my daddy laying there with that bullet hole in his face on that metal table, and it just got cold. I reached for that faith I'd been professing, and I come up with a handful of mush. I don't know that I've ever been felt more alone, more isolated, more afraid, more angry, more sad in all of my life than I did right there. And, you know, I hear people say all the time, you know, uh, I wouldn't trade my best day sober. I, uh, my best day sober is better. Worst day sober is better than my best day drunk. That hasn't been my experience because I drank from my earliest memory and I stopped when I was 20. And that's the first time I ever become present in life. So for the first time in my life, I'm dealing with this with nothing but thank you, God. Twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship sponsorship, and God. First and foremost, God. I felt so lost, and I, I walked out that door, and I realized that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself, because as soon as I opened the door, there were some members of AA and Al-Anon there, and they just looked at me. And I knew it was going to be all right. I didn't know how. <laughs> had no idea how. And everywhere I went, there was a member of Al-Anon or AA. It was a God incident, you know. Everywhere I'd go. Big John would be outside my house at 7 a.m., coincidentally or God incidentally when I'd go out and he'd put down the paper and he'd give me a little thumbs up and wink John doesn't go to work till 10 o'clock I know that he'd say oh I was just in the neighborhood yeah John <laughs> thank you for just being in the neighborhood you know loving somebody we got to do some things that are inconvenient from time to time thank God if you're not doing things inconvenient for the people you love then it's self-service it isn't love trust me and everywhere I went, and I remember I went to the funeral, and uh, we were I was raised Lutheran, and a priest did my father's funeral. Now, let me explain that to you. <laughs> Mom was a Lutheran, and bring us to church, and Dad didn't like church much. He didn't, uh, he didn't care for it much. And before he got murdered, about six months before he got murdered, he got real sick and was in the hospital. And he called the spiritual care department, and he said, can somebody come up and baptize me? And a guy named Father Grubb came up and baptized him. And the old man really loved Father Grubb. They hit it off. Of course, Father Grubb got sober a few years later. It all makes sense now. But, you know, uh, but it was wonderful. And, and Mom said, you know, Dad didn't like our pastor at all, but he sure liked Father Grubb. Let's see if he'll call, do the service. And this was 
Unfortunately, you know it all too well here. When tragedies like that, it's a big deal. Everybody and their brother comes out of the woodwork to try to heal and to try to share. And, to, and it was uh, it was uh, just uh, 2,000 people came to my father's funeral. My dad was a foundry worker. I always thought he wasn't much. Boy, was I wrong. Boy, was I wrong. 2,000 people came. Father Grubb did that funeral and he said something that gave me keys to the kingdom and changed my life. He said, you know, a lot of people would say Clifford's death is God's will. He said, I don't believe that for five minutes. And I sat right up in the pew. He said, I believe this. I believe God created human beings and gave us all a free will. Some human beings chose to do this. And now it's God's will. It's like the weight of the world fell off my shoulders. You mean God didn't kill Dad for all the bad things I'd done? Because, well, I remembered some of that scripture stuff. Whatever you do will come back on your family for generations. That was my thought when I was standing next to my dad in that morning. They killed him because of me. Thank God I learned different. Thank God Father Grubb did that. Thank God he gave me one of the keys to the kingdom. I used to say, if there's a God, why are there starving children everywhere? It's real simple. We're upping our cell phone minutes rather than sending a few bucks. Don't blame God anymore. Don't be such a chump. You know, and don't make him your chump. Why is cancer so rampant? We pollute everything we touch and want to blame everybody else. Don't blame God anymore. He created this and he sees the destruction we're doing. I'm sure he cries daily. Because I believe then and I believe now. If it isn't good, it isn't God. It's just that simple. My God doesn't teach me lessons. Every once in a while I'll hear, I'll come into a meeting, somebody say, God was testing me today. <laughs> yeah, he was just testing me. And I think, that's right, God had nothing better to do to stop the world and screw around with your day. That's right. You're just that important, aren't you? Yeah. My God never tests me. But life constantly tests me, and that's why I need God. Sounds like a little difference, but it's a big difference to me. Life constantly tests me, but my God never does. My God doesn't change like shifting shadows. Good all the time. And I am so grateful for that. Uh, got called to the do the murder trial. By the way, we started, what, at 15 after, is it? Yeah, okay. By, uh, I just didn't want you clock watchers going, well, he's talking, you know. Uh, just, not that that makes any difference to me. I just wanted you to know I was aware. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they called me to testify at the murder trial, and that was tough. I didn't really want to do that because uh, the, the guys in AA said, you know, you got to go do that. And he said, I, then they made a request that was impossible. They said, you got to behave. <laughs> I'd never behaved in court in my life, you know. And they said, you might be the only example of AA anybody ever sees. And I've never forgotten that. And I try to be mindful of that in everything I do. And I amazed myself because I went to court and I went to trial and I walked in. There's some guy sitting there with his little attitude and his little do acting like he's half tough. And I thought, put him in a room with me for five minutes. Let's see how tough he is. In fact, bring all five of them in. Let's see how tough they are. But I didn't do any of that. I sat down in the chair and I simply answered the questions that were asked in a respectful and I answered in a respectful and courteous manner. And I left. And those guys were convicted. And I was pleased. 
for the next year, I used to think how I'd like to even the score with those guys because 20 years I've been brought up an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And you mess around with my family, you got a world of trouble coming at you. And then I've been hanging around you guys for a year. and You're talking about live and let live and a change of heart and a change of mind. Thank God you went out. God talked to me about that time. Now you got to be careful when God talks to you. Hope you got a sponsor. God, uh, sponsors are God filters. They're excellent God filters. I remember one time I went to my sponsor. I said, you know, I got a message from God. He said, really, Ed, why don't you share it with me? <laughs> and I shared it with him. He said, you know, Ed, this message from God looks strangely like your handwriting. You know? <laughs> but I also got to tell you, and it talks about that in the book, that sometimes we're going to make some mistakes. But it also says that I am going to have a conscious contact with God every moment of the day if I choose to. Read 86, 87, 88. Uh, they did a great job on it yesterday, and I'll probably talk about it again today. But uh, 86, 87, 88, you want to change your life? Do what it says. On the page, in the two pages, it tells you how to wake up, how to go to bed. What to do in the middle when you're confused. I mean, what else do you need? took me 18 years sober, and I've always been a student of the book, and somehow that just passed me by. You know? God talked to me and said, Ed, go out to California, get into show business. Looked at my resume, said, okay. <laughs> got in my car, went to where all stars get their start, Anaheim, California. I got a job at Disneyland. I was goofy. <laughs> Little did they know how well I fit the role at that point. Two and a half years sober, not talking to my sponsor much, not going to many meetings. I was goofy. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't have a sponsor at that, at that time, to be cor absolutely correct about it. But I went up to a meeting in West L.A., and uh, it was an exciting meeting, and there was a lot of enthusiasm, and they were, uh, they were participating in recovery fully, and I just loved it. And I went up there the next week, and there was this guy there, and I said, excuse me, would you be my sponsor? He said, no. And I said, why not? He said, anybody I sponsor has to look up to me. <laughs> I thought, oh, good, tall jokes. That's going to help me. <laughs> no. And he stuck out his hand, and he said, you agree to do what I tell you to do. I'll be your sponsor. My name's Clancy. And I'm forever grateful I didn't hear some of the crap that goes around about him. You know why? You would have killed me. I would have believed what you said, and you would have killed me. There's no place for gossip in Alcoholics Anonymous. No place for gossip in Alcoholics Anonymous. Or character assassination. Mild form of character assassination. I believe it says in 6 or 7. But I would have never gone to anybody that acted like that. Because I believed you. If you said it, I believed you. So restraint of pen and tongue. You know, Very important. Very important. I am so glad uh, because I believe Clancy to me was what uh, Bill Wilson was to Bob, Dr. Bob. A lot of people had tried to get to me, but he had he had the way to get to me. And he absolutely convinced me that this program would work with for me in spite of all my crazinesses, in spite of all my list of the different things. And that he swore that if I applied these steps to my life, that it would change my life and it worked, and it has been so. Uh, I remember I went to speak in a meeting in Pasadena, California. And uh, it was a wealthy area. And I thought, ooh, Pasadena may hook up with a job. Man. And I caught myself doing that little hustle and stopped right there. Because after my father died, I started all over with God. Because remember I told you I started professing what I didn't have. I don't do that anymore. I profess what I have. And I started all over with the prayer of God. I don't know if you're there or not. I sure hope so. 
how honest and how true, because that's how I always felt. And when I caught myself doing that little hustle for that Pasadena thing, I got down on my knees and said the same prayer I said in the hotel this morning before I came over here. I got down on my knees and I said, God, save me from my own nonsense. I used a different word then. Now I say nonsense. And let me just share the miracle you've performed in my life through Alcoholics Anonymous. First and foremost, I don't want anything from any of these people. I've already been overpaid. I do not come on a plane every weekend to talk to ensure my sobriety. I come to share my sobriety. I've been overpaid. I'm not doing this for a payoff anymore. I'm doing it for a payback out of gratitude for what you've given me. That's why I do this. I heard somebody said, you know, a while back, well, it takes a pretty good ego to go out 40-plus weeks a year. I said, or a lot of gratitude, one of the two. How much are you willing to give up to help somebody? Spoke at that meeting in Pasadena. A guy come up to me afterwards and said, you ever been in show business management? I said, no. He said, you, you, you ever been to Taiwan? I said, no. He said, be in my office Monday morning. I said, okay. <laughs> went to his, that was Saturday. Monday I went to his office in Century City in Los Angeles. Uh, met with the, the producer. And da, da, da. Thursday I was lifting out of Los Angeles International Airport, going to Taipei, Taiwan. I was new soon to be vice president of America on Ice. I was going over there to build an ice rink and negotiate contracts with the Taiwanese government while supporting my cast of 62 and making living arrangements while flying back and forth with designer Bill Campbell from Las Vegas to Hong Kong to make the costumes. How was your week? (laughs) Now, the Thursday before that, I was a laborer for a construction firm in Beverly Hills. Don't tell me God can't change your life like that. I had no qualifications for that job. I had less than a seventh grade education. I got felonies as long as both arms. Put me in charge. (laughs) And they did. I remember getting off the plane in Taiwan and everybody's this tall. I'm looking at them and they're looking at me. I know it's just a matter of time before they tie me down. (laughs) And I had a great time over there. I don't have time to go into it, but I just had... I'll tell you why I was there. God showed me gifts that He had given me and talents that I would have never believed until He let me see them. You know, all those people who told you you have so much to offer, they have always been right. You have always been wrong. Honest. If you want to change your life, change your mind. Honest. Honest. I was over there in type, uh, Kaohsiung. We were ending our tour, and a guy walked by me and said, you know, you'd be an excellent manager for the Harlem Globetrotters. And I'm like, yeah, sure, good, yeah. <laughs> and I finished up the tour, got home, and uh, was home about three months, and the Harlem Globetrotters called me up. Said, Mr. Mutum, we've heard wonderful things about you. Would you come and talk to us? And I said, I'd be honored to. Now, do you know why I showed up for those interviews? You absolutely convinced me to drop my bags of ones. I would have never gone otherwise. I always said God was holding me back, but my own image of God and limitation of God and my own limitation of my own abilities is what held me back. All God wants from me is the very best. I'm the one that keeps arguing. You know. And... uh I went up there for an interview a short eight hours later. I was the new road manager of the Harlem Globetrotters. 
Now, I got to tell you, in Davenport, Iowa, in my house, every January, there'd be a happy time. And it's the only happy family time I remember. It was in mid-January, and Dad would be sober. It'd be on a Sunday afternoon. Now, Mom would be popping popcorn, and everybody would gather around TV because there'd be this basketball team coming out. And all of a sudden, they'd start whistling Sweet Georgia Brown, and they'd come out, and everybody at my house smiled. There was peace. There was no arguments. Can I tell you what it meant to me to be in Madison Square Garden and giving Lemon the sign to go? Don't tell me there aren't miracles in Alcoholics Anonymous. And don't tell me that I'm special. I'm at best average. If he can do it in my life, he can certainly do it in yours. Just one question. Are you willing to participate? Are you willing to drop the bag of ones? Are you willing to go forward? And I had a great time. I went all over the world and I met kings, queens, and presidents. And you know what? I fit in because I belong there. I no longer say, it was funny, three weeks ago I was in Palm Beach, Florida, and a stretch Bentley picked me up and drove me around all weekend. And uh, 6 o'clock Monday morning they drove me to the airport in that stretch Bentley, and I said goodbye to the chauffeur, good guy. Got on a plane, and 12 hours later I'm in a meatpacking plant in Joslin, Illinois, on the slaughter floor going, man, i got to get some balance here, you know. <laughs> i got to get a little balance is what i got to get. But in actuality, God gives me the very best. I get to see it all, man. I get both feet in it. I am not required to be any particular place to be happy. And I found that here in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know. uh, Eighteen years sober, I lost everything I owned. And out of uh, arrogance and uh, greed, I made some judgments made on, based on cash flow. Didn't talk to my sponsor. Certainly didn't pray about it. Lost everything I owned. I mean, they even took the Mercedes, you know. Got real personal. And uh, <laughs> I went back to Iowa. I thought, you know, if I'm going to start all over, I'm going back to Iowa. I'd been in L.A. for 17 years, and I went back home. And, and uh, there was a lot there that I still needed to work the steps with that I hadn't. And I'm glad I went back. And I've been back there since 88. And I remember in 92, I was sitting there. I just quit smoking. Uh, I just didn't want to do that anymore. I felt that was block, blocking me off in the sunlight of the Spirit. And so they told me to start running. So I said, okay. Went out and got my gym shoes. Got my, got my shorts. Doing my stretching. Went out and broke my leg. <laughs> if you're 350 pounds, don't jog. Just trust me. And I'm laying there at home, and, and I'm reviewing my life, and you know, my life is getting back on track. i got a little apartment house that I own, and things are going well, and I'm, I'm making a few bucks, and catching up on that child support I got so far back on, sober. And uh, God talked to me. He said, Ed, what about education? I did what any good alcoholic would do. I went, la, 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 la. <laughs> Didn't matter. He called right back, you know. So I wandered, I wandered over to the university I with my crutches. I wandered in and I said, I'd like to go to school. And they said, how many credits do you have? I said, I have bad credits. Why? What's that got to do? <laughs> and they laughed like you did. And I said, no, you don't understand. And I shared one of the most precious gifts you'd give me. I said, you don't seem to understand. I don't know how to go to school. I got kicked out of school when I was in seventh grade and I didn't pay any attention years before that. And I don't know if I'm smart enough to pass a class but I'd like to try. Would you help me? 
And of course they said yes. Within three weeks, I'm doing university studies. I had taken my GED as a joke out at UCLA because I was dating this gal who graduated from Vosser and was a little annoyed I didn't have a high school education. <laughs> so I looked in the paper one day. UCLA was given tests. I went over and got one for her. Here you go. Thank you very much. You know. And uh, thank God because that's what got me into school. And uh, I worked full time. Went to school full-time, didn't miss an AA commitment. Please don't tell me you don't have enough time. If it's what God wants you to do, he'll give you 30-hour days. That's my experience. And about halfway through uh, my BA, I, I went to a retreat and I had a spiritual awakening, very similar to what uh, Bill had. And the best way I can describe it is it changed my heart and my mind from that day to this. And uh, God called me into the ministry. Now, I don't know how that happened. But I know this, I didn't argue. And I said, yes, sir. And I, I, I've been a pastor now for the last 13 years. Now, I'm not here to make you a sunbeam for Jesus. <laughs> but I'm here hoping and praying that you find the relationship with your God that I found with mine. I hope that you're just as fulfilled and complete with your relationship as I am with mine, and I will pray. And, and I have people from all different faiths that I pray with every single day. You know, I don't know if I've got the right answer. I'm just betting my life on it right now. And I hope you've got the same kind of faith that you can bet your life on, you know, and still be reachable and teachable by anybody in any place. Then they said, well, you know, you got to finish your BA, and then you got to go get a little 96-hour master's degree. Masters of Divinity, so it took me six years working full-time, going to school full-time, talking in AA, sponsoring people, active in my home group. And I got ordained and I uh, got my master's degree. and That was all well and good. I've never stopped going to meetings. A lot of times people say, you know, I have Jesus now, Ed. I don't know if I need church. And I said, well, I think Jesus needs you in AA. Be a little sunbeam there. You know, an AA is really funny. It really is funny. You can have a rock for a higher power. You can have a pole. You can have a plant. You can have a person. You can have a group. Just don't mention Jesus, okay? <laughs> but we're not hypocritical. <laughs> we're open. We're inclusive. Freely. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, but I, I do not apologize for my faith. I promise you that. I do not apologize for my sobriety or my faith or my God. Uh, and uh, like I say, I hope that you get exactly from your God what I'm getting from mine. If you're doing a little better, share it with me. Maybe I can learn something more. Because I want God as close as my next breath. You know, a guy asked me one time, he said, Ed, if you died tomorrow, would you regret how you spent today? And I reviewed my conduct that day, and I can certainly tell you I would have been full of regret since that day. I haven't regretted it. You know? One thing about working these steps continuously and consistently in Alcoholics Anonymous is my slate is pretty doggone clean. And I like it. A few years ago, uh, I had a heart problem. I had some pains in my chest. I went down on my knees twice, and I was chopping wood in the north woods. Like a good alcoholic, I waited the rest of my vacation before I went to the doctor. I, you know, it's kind of nice up there. And uh, I went in, went into this doctor, and he's a good guy. A cardiologist, and he did all kinds of tests and that. And he called me in on a Monday night, and he said, Ed, he said, uh, we need you in here at 5 in the morning. I said, okay. He said, well, the test come back. It isn't looking good. Your heart's pretty well damaged in the upper part and the lower part. I said, it's not good. I said, okay. 
He said, well, I need you to go home and get your affairs in order. I said, okay. He said, Ed, do you understand the severity of what I'm saying to you? I said, yeah, I get it. He said, Ed, really, you need to go home. You need to get your affairs in order. This can be very... And I said, Doc, you're threatening me with heaven. And he went, well, I'd never heard of it like that before. (laughs) I said, you know, if I've ever had a shot at going, it's now... You know? And the next day they took me in in my church. I was a, a pastor at a 1,200-member church at that time. And they said, what would you like us to do? And I said, pray for the people who love me. This has come on awful quick. And I am pleased that a lot of people love me. Unbelievable. A lot of people love me. And I said, say, say prayers for the people who love me cause, and, and make it a celebration. Don't ever make it a sad moment. Make it a rock, man. And uh, they didn't listen to me. They um, <laughs> they prayed for a healing, and I didn't ask for that. I asked for them to pray. For, but uh, I went in at five o'clock in the morning, and they couldn't get me in until five o'clock that evening. And when they had me in there doing that angioplasty with the heart surgeon standing by, he's pumping dye into my heart, and he says, "Look at this, Ed." And I'm watching the TV because I want to see what's going on, you know. And I, I don't know what I'm looking at, but he's pumping and there's liquid coming out. He said, you got the heart of an 11-year-old. He said, we must have made some mistake or something. I said, you call it what you want. I'll call it what I want, Doc. Have a good day. Let me up. Let me up. And I haven't had a heart problem since. And I'm real grateful for that. Uh, five years ago, we got a new uh, uh, bishop in, and he came in, and I was at a church that I'd never been happier in my life. 1,200-member church, and... There was about three in there that didn't like me. That's about two ninety nine to one if I got it figured right. And you know what? I can't tell you their names. Can't tell you their names because they're of not importance to me. I addressed the situation, looked at it honestly, see if there was something I could repair, and then dismissed. And this bishop said, you know, Ed, you're going to have to make a choice. You can either continue to talk in AA or you can be a United Methodist minister. And God, that was no-brainer on one hand, but it was the hardest thing I've ever done on the other because I love those people. And I told them I was leaving, and they had a roast, and 450 people showed up at the roast. And one guy stood up and said, we don't even want to say anything bad about Pastor Ed, even jokingly. We just want to tell him that we love him. And we are so glad that for the last four or five years he's been here with us walking through our darkest times and our biggest celebrations, and that we support his ministry and we support his membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that it will be, he'll be in our prayers forever. Now that was six miles from where I laid in the middle of the street in 1971. If there's not a God, if this thing don't work, explain that to me. Before I left that church, shortly before I left that church, I'll close on this. Before I left that church, I was uh, preaching on forgiveness one night. And I was giving them heaven because they'd had enough of the other crap. And... Uh, Right in the middle of that sermon, I stopped and I realized I was being hypocritical because it was on the passage of don't come to my altar if you got a problem with one of the brothers out there. Go, you know, go make that right before you come here. And I was right in the middle of the sermon and I realized I had never told the guys who killed my father that they were forgiven. Now you want to know how well AA works and you aren't going to believe this because I hardly believe it. I could not remember the names of the guys that killed my father. Kidding me? Couldn't remember. But I knew that I had never told them that they'd been forgiven for a long time. And in my opinion, an amend, and when you forgive somebody, it's worthless if you haven't told them. It's just self-serving. 
And I stopped right in the middle of the sermon and said, I'll search them out and I'll find Two and a half weeks later, one of these guys' sentence was overturned. And the press came to me. I'm loved way in my community where I'm at because of the way you taught me to live and behave. And the press came and the press was all over me. And they said, well, this guy, they're going to let him go home. What do you think? And I said, well, let him go home. Let him, let him start fresh. And they said, well, he went in there where he's 17. He don't know how to work. Where's he going to live? Where's he going to get clothes? They said, he can come live with me. I'll take care of it. And people couldn't understand that. They've obviously never been to AA. Where you welcome me? How can I say no to him? What's the difference? Seconds and inches? Amount of alcohol? Situation? How dare I? How dare I not welcome him into my life? That story went all over the world. All over the world. It's on the front page of the New York Times, I understand. The Los Angeles Times. When Oprah's calling me, 48 hours is calling me, 2020 is calling me. Well, what are you doing? I said, well, it's called Step 8 and 9. And if you really work at Step 8, then, you know. <laughs> I remember I always loved Oprah. I like Oprah. And her producer called me and said, uh, we'd like you to be on the show. And I said, oh, that'd be cool. I'd like that. And they said, this coming Friday, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm speaking in Orlando at a central, uh, central office anniversary. And they said, yeah, this is the Oprah show. And I said, it's their anniversary. <laughs> you know? Because you taught me here to do what's right and do the commitment you made first, regardless of what comes up. And I'm not letting my friends down there that have been waiting two years for me to come and talk. I would have loved to have done that. And they just thought I was nuts. They haven't called me back either. <laughs> and that's just fine. Two and a half weeks later, I found myself walking down a prison hall of a prison that I'd swore I'd never step foot in again. And I walked in and uh, I saw the guy that I hadn't seen in 28 years. Last time I saw him, he was sitting in a courtroom with a smirk and an attitude on his face. And I said, give me five minutes with him and we don't need this trial. And I saw myself doing what you taught me to do, stick it out this big old paw and say, hi, my name's Reverend Ed Mutum. And I'm here to tell you that I, I love you and I forgive you. And I only have one thing to ask of you. And he said, what's that? And I said, if there's ever anything I can do in your life to make it better, allow me to do that. And he looked into this old timer's eyes and he knew I wasn't kidding. There were no fun and games here, man. It's time to heal. And I stayed for two and a half hours. And the oddest thing is we became friends. We ended that meeting with the State Attorney General being there, the ward being there, because this was a big deal. And we all held hands and cried and said the Lord's Prayer. How appropriate. And sure enough, uh, they were going to retry him, and I went down to my friend, the county attorney, and I said, please, don't retry him. Let him plead second degree or something. Let him come home. He's been in there 30 years. It's of no use for him to stay there anymore. And they said... Uh, Eddie's just conning you. I said, no, he don't even know I'm here. He don't even know I come down to talk to you. He is my friend. Please help me save my friend. And he listened. He let him plead a second-degree murder. And at the courtroom that day, Sherman turned around and apologized to everybody in there. He said, I don't even know I'm, who I'm apologizing to. But please, please, please forgive me. I have no defense for what I did. I didn't learn that in seminary. I learned that in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. About a year and a half later, the 
Iowa State Correctional Facility called me up and said, Mr. Mutum, Sherman's ready to be released and you're the only one we'll let him go to. Because there was a lot of controversy about him coming home. Can you imagine that? The son of a murder victim is the only person they'll let him go to. And I went up and I picked him up and I brought him home and he was in a halfway house for a while and that didn't work out too well. And uh, he went back away and then he called me and he said, uh, Ed, uh, a year and a half later, he said, uh, I'm coming home again. Do you think I could find him? I said, you can come and live with me. That was the deal. And he came home and I got him an apartment and I got him some nice clothes and got him a few bucks and we went out and got him a job and he fell in love and I haven't seen him since. <laughs> End of a beautiful story as far as I'm concerned. But did I do that because I'm Mr. Wonderful? No. I'm doing it because you were that kind to me. In the prayer we'll say, hopefully at the end of this meeting, there's a little line in there that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I hope if you're carrying any burdens or any anger or any resentment during the prayer today, you just leave it here. And after you're done with the session this morning, that you go out of here with a cleaner heart than you've ever had and a better life than you've ever had and a sense of peace. Thank you, buddy. And a sense of peace like you've never known. I try to make it my job that wherever I go to leave a piece of my soul with you because that's all I got of any value. Hope I've done that this morning. I feel I have. I want to thank Bart for the honor and the privilege of being here. And I want to thank you and all your hard work for putting this together. And all of you who have come out here this morning. God bless you and keep you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.